Adam, you had a goal to make a feature film before a certain age. Yeah. Want to tell us about that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so uh, back in the day, I've been trying to be a filmmaker since I was like 17, like in earnest. It's like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, but I always thought I was going to be like Robert Rodriguez. You know, like he was my idol, you know, like young gun, like doing his feature by 23. I was like, that's going to be me. I definitely have that talent. And then 23 came and 23 went and I hadn't done it. I was like, okay, all right. Like maybe, maybe I'm not like Robert Rodriguez. Maybe I'm more like, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino. He did his by like 27, his first feature. I'll do that. 27 comes, 27 goes. Um, and I was, I was sort of devastated, you know, because I was working on a lot of projects and doing a lot of shorts, but uh, I, I hadn't gotten it done. And it, and it hit me when I turned to 30. I was like, that, that's like a big milestone when you turn 30, you know, like you start thinking about a lot of things, you know, like your body starts changing and you, you get like weird, like, you know, like aches in your knees or whatever. <laughs> like it just, it just happens at 30. Try um, 40. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, all right, I, I have to do it. You know, like I'm 30. I wanted to do it by at least 30 and now I'm 30. Like, how do I do it before I become 31? And I was going through, you know, all of this at the beginning of the year, like January of, I think it was uh, 2015. And I was like, okay, I turned 31 in July of 2015. How do I do a feature by then? You know, and I had this idea. Um, it was like a very small contained one room thing. And I was like, okay, I can do that. Like I can do that quickly. Um, and so I just sort of set my mind to it, set a date. And I was like, I have to do it, you know, like, July was that point where I was like, I have to at least shoot it by then. So I just went for it. In January, I started writing the script, wrote the heck out of it. Um, you know, in February, I started doing revisions to the script while just going right into pre-production. It was the sort of thing where I was like, I don't have time to look for funding and do that whole like game because that's a whole nother job that I just didn't have time for. So I was like, all right, I will find a way to fund this. It'll be super, super cheap. I'll have to put a bunch on credit cards through the old like Kevin Smith clerks method um, and just pay for it that way because I have to get it done. And, you know, I just started reaching out to people, compiling the cast and the crew. And like, I found that, you know, there's a certain point in projects where it does sort of start moving. Like it's this big boulder and you've been pushing it or it's like this train on a track and you've been pushing it and then the train starts moving on its own. And then you realize like, oh, this, this is happening. Like people are into it. People like the project. They want to be involved. Like things, doors start opening for you strangely, you know, like the universe helps you out a little bit. Um, and that's what I found for that, which was amazing because I was like, all right, this is supposed to happen. So let's get it done. And then, uh, Everything sort of worked out and we found a great location and we shot it in four days in June, like a full month before that, before my birthday, before that cutoff day. And, uh, and we did it, you know, and looking back, it's tough to, you know, sort of pick apart exactly like how it all came together, but, but it did. So I, I think the central driving thing was that I had a date where I had to get it done and I just found a way to make it work. Well, let's backtrack a second because yeah. I know you have this goal and 
you felt like the clock was ticking, but it wasn't like you were just couch surfing and going to raves all the time. You yeah. had a, a job, mm-hmm. you were PAing before that, and then yeah. you had gone to college. So yeah. you were doing many other things that yeah. essentially would tire a lot of people out. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, while I was doing that, I had this full-time job. Um, and it was that thing where I think back when I was trying to be like that Robert Rodriguez, like 23 year old, now that I'm like far past that, I go, you know what? I actually wasn't ready. And I would hate to have seen what my 23 year old feature film would have been because I've seen some of my 23 year old short films and I'm super embarrassed by them. You know what I mean? So to try to put that all together in a feature, I don't think mentally I was ready yet. And I don't think that from like getting your 10,000 hours in, in terms of like the reps, in terms of writing and directing, like getting all those hours in, so you can actually make something that I would think to be worthwhile for myself. I hadn't done that yet. I hadn't gotten the reps in, you know? So I needed to just keep writing and, and failing and making shorts and having them not turn out well and making pilots for web series that never went anywhere and just making all this stuff because in the making stuff and in the writing stuff and in the failing and in all those rejections, that's you know where you really learn how to make a story and craft a story. Um, and so I think by the time I turned 30, I had done enough um, where I was, I was ready to do a feature. You know, I knew that I could do it. I had done some, you know, fairly decently larger scale shorts. And I'm like, you know what, I can do, I can do a feature too. Looking back, do you think that there are like two schools of filmmakers? There's two schools of filmmakers. There's one that's sort of this rock star type that can just take these risks Mm -hmm. and luckily everything turns out. But then there's others that plan things more and maybe that's just their style and it doesn't mean they're any less of a filmmaker, mm-hmm. but they feel better knowing that I's are dotted, T's are crossed. Sure, I mean, there's there's definitely part of that, I think. Um, I think a lot of it can be, like some people are just sort of those like young savants, you know, and some people are sort of right for their time, you know, like um, would El Mariachi, you know, have, was it made in 2019? Would anybody care? You know what I mean? Versus when it was made in 92, 93, when the indie landscape was so different, you know? And that's that's something to think about too. Like there's a lot of like luck in the time and luck in the place. Um, but in terms of like, you know, people who are, you know, potentially more pragmatic or like to dot the I's and cross the T's and versus the more rock stars, I mean, part of that is probably, you know, just who you are as a person mm-hmm. and what you're gifted with. And I thought that I was a gifted young auteur and I realized that I was not. I realized that I needed to really put in the work and, you know, build up that confidence, build up, you know, the ability to tell a story like, and that's when I I sort of appreciated the stories about, you know, like, like JC Shandor, you know, who was like 37 when he got his first, you know, big film, you know, and he had been working for a while. He thought he was going to quit. And that's like, and it, and it worked out for him because he just kept going. And those are the stories that I really, you know, are that I'm drawn to now. And those are the stories that I feel are very underreported, you know, by Hollywood, because everybody likes the 23 year old, 
you know, who does something splashy and big. And it's like, you know, kid, you have not lived long enough to really understand how to tell like a story, you know? And there's some people I'm sure that have, but a lot of times, you know, they're just riffing off of movies and because that's all the experience that they have. I know that that's the case for me is like, I didn't have enough of life, life experience. I was just like, oh, I like Tarantino's movie. So I'm going to make a version of that, you know? And it's all about like trying to find your own identity in that regard. But for me, I needed, you know, to just take the time and just work a lot and fail a lot um, in order to get to a spot, you know, where I could make that first feature. Right. And maybe not everybody's meant for the lifestyle of what didn't Rodriguez do like this medical testing and these different things yeah. to raise money. Yeah. I mean, then, and that's very like, whoa, when you hear the story, that's, mm-hmm. but again, not everybody, and maybe I shouldn't have used the word rock star because then that, but that sort of like carefree, rebellious, and some other people might be more planners. Yeah. And it doesn't mean they're any less talented. It's just, it's a sexier sell when you right. think, yeah, I put everything on a credit card. Yeah. And yeah. luckily it worked out. Don't try this at home, kids, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing. The interesting thing, you know, like, when you hear about, like, the real stories behind it, you figure out, like, oh, well, Rodriguez, even though he was 23, he had been doing this for so long, and he had made hundreds of short films by the time he made his feature at 23. And I had certainly not, you know? So it's a little bit unfair to judge in that regard because, like, what took me 10 years, you know, it took him 10 years, but he was starting you know, when he was like 10 or 11 or whatever, was able to get all those films in, you know? So he was ready by the time, you know, he hit 23, obviously. Right. And also too, some people are just risk takers yeah, by yeah. nature. Mm-hmm. Do you think you're a risk taker or you're more of a planner? That's a good question. Um, I, uh, I think I'm kind of both. I, I like to plan and I like to, you know, make sure that everything's sort of ready, but like you do have to take risks a lot. Um, you know, you want to sort of have the universe try to show you the way a little bit, but if it doesn't, you still have to have the courage to make, you know, that leap, take that risk. Why do you think it's so important for so many filmmakers to make that first feature film by 30? That's a fantastic question. Um, by 30, uh, I think it's, you know, your 20s are about sort of figuring out who you are and a lot of trial and error and a lot of like messing up. And when you hit your 30s, you sort of have that feeling like you have to have it all together, right? Like you're an adult now, you're an official adult. You're not in the 20s, like put all that, you know, childish stuff behind. You're in the 30s, you're you're thinking about building a family and, and, and doing all of that. And you're really thinking about your career and, and sort of, you know, how you advance in that, whatever it may be, day job, you know, we're filmmaking. Um, and so I think it's that, that pressure of, of turning 30 and feeling like you need to become a full adult that pushes people to go, well, I need to do a feature now. Um, and I think, you know, you know, some people may be ready for that just as developmentally. Some people, you know, are still going to be tooling around and, you know, doing all this club life and dating and stuff in their 30s, which, you know, you can do or should do or have to do, you know, depending on your situation. Or situation. 60s, yeah. But, um, <laughs> they could be know. in their 60s doing that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. It, it really just does depend on the person. Yeah, I think a lot of it, it, well, 
it seems like it comes from family pressure mm. or that traditional sort of idea and people don't want to let their their family unit down and sure. some people don't have that and they have a like maybe they wish they had it because mm -hmm. they're so carefree yeah so i think there's two two sides of the coin and I, i've seen a lot of people that come from very close-knit families where you know they really want their kids to succeed yeah but then there is that pressure like you've got to grow up by 30 and sure. so i think when you're creative it might be tricky because you want to please the people that you love but mm -hmm. at the same time you're still an artist in some way and you yeah. want to do that so you've managed to do both you've done a lot of short films mm -hmm. you've made a feature and you said that you were paing for sometimes you know you would like 15 hour days yeah, yeah. back when i first moved out to los angeles um i i didn't go to film school um i went to uh, a journalism school in Des Moines, Iowa, where I was a part of the radio and TV production program. So I learned a lot technically, you know, but what I didn't learn was how to like make films or how to tell stories, you know, um, in that regard. So what I knew that I needed once I moved out to LA was like real onset experience. Like how is a movie set run? What makes, you know, a good movie set? What makes a bad movie set in terms of operating it? Because if I'm gonna be running this one day, I need to know what styles of work I like, what styles of work I don't. And when you start at the very bottom and you sort of see everything from that low position and you see how like people are, are treated and you know, you have those eyes into everything. Um, I think it's a really good look. And it was for me about like how I want my sets to run. And the one set that I worked on, um, which really, set a high example of like what an amazing film set is, is uh, when I worked on A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movie. Great. Yeah, it was, uh, it was filming back in Minnesota, and I was like, this is an amazing opportunity. I will, uh, I gotta get on this set, right? So I found a way to connect to the ADs, and I told them, I was like, like, I know you may need PAs from out there. I will, I'm from there, I'm from Minnesota, I will move back there for, you know, while that's being shot, you don't have to put me up, you don't have to do anything, like, just let me work on a Coen Brothers set. Yeah. And they're like, cool, come on board. So I did it, uh, I spent a month out there, and just being able to like, see how the Coens worked, and just, I mean, seeing Roger Deakins work, for one, was just amazing, but um, being able to, to see how respectful everybody was, how nobody yelled, how quiet the set was, um, how everybody did their jobs and like was very, it was a very, you know, familial feeling set. Um, it was really just eye-opening because you've been, you know, I at least have been on those sets of low budget things and like Hallmark movies and big movies, you know, all in between and TV shows and you, you see like, the tensions and the stress and the yelling and the screaming and the disrespect, like you see all of that. Um, and the Coens, like on a serious man, they had none of that. Like it was the smoothest running set. Um, everybody was really on board and it was, it was a pleasure to be on. How cool, yeah. wow. So sorry, you were in LA mm -hmm. and then you thought, well, let me go back, please, please let me be on the yeah. set and you went back home. 100%, I mean like, uh, there was no other way I was gonna be able to get on that set. It's like, I had to sacrifice. I had to be like, you know, I will fly myself out there. I'll stay at my parents' house. It'll be fun to see everybody again, you know, but just let me work on this movie, please. 
And so did you stay at your parents' house? I did, yeah. yeah and yeah. so what time would you leave to go to set? That's so cool. Oh man, I would I would leave, I would say around like 5 a.m. to get to set around like 5.36, cause the PAs are like the first on set, you know, first on set, last to leave. Um, so yeah, you know, just sort of driving through the night and getting to whatever location, whether it's, you know, the suburban street that the family lived on or, you know, the park where they're down by the lake, like, it was it was fun, you know, and, and allowed me to see a different part of Minnesota and the place that I grew up than I would have otherwise. And, you know, you realize like, oh, yeah, there's this whole strip of a neighborhood that has, you know, houses that were just still they lit, still look like they're from like that era, you know, like the 60s, the 70s. Like it's really trippy and it really opens your eyes about like what is around, you know, what's available sort of, you know, in your hometown. And how was it to see the actors between takes? Because that's where, like, mm. the first, I think the first set I was on was Melrose Place. Mm -hmm. Back, I mean, like, well, aren't there two of them? They're the first one, the yeah. 90s one. Yeah. And for me, seeing, like, what it was actually like, seeing them turn the camera, okay, let's try another angle. Mm -hmm. How was that for you? Um, it was cool when I could see it, you know, because as a PA, sometimes you don't necessarily get to be, like, that close to set. Sometimes you're stuck way out, you know, like, blocking traffic or making sure, you know, that people don't, you know, invade the set or whatever. But when I got to sort of see, uh, you know, like some of the smaller scenes, you know, with the actors, it was, it was really cool to see, you know, how, how excited everybody was to be there and like how the Coens worked with everybody and, you know, how easy it sort of seemed. That's, that's what was interesting is like, for me, working with actors, especially established actors, you know, as somebody who hasn't, you know, done that many films, it's, uh, it's a little, you know, freaky. <laughs> You're like, you've done a lot and what have I done? So it's a little intimidating and, uh, but they made it seem so easy, which is like, that's sort of what I want to strive for. So when you wrapped, how was it you, you had to fly back to LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I spent about a month um, home and then my time was done. I was like, all right, well, back to L.A. to try to find the next job, you know, because that's what it is when you're a PA. It's like it's making those connections on set and trying to get work and like pinging those connections when you're out of work and trying to figure out what to do. Um, so it's it's a really terrifying thing um, that I I'm glad I did when I was young and I sort of didn't know any better. And I was just full of this head of steam of like, all right, like I'm gonna make this happen no matter what. And you just sort of, because you're fearless in that regard, you know, even though you're full of fear, which is an interesting dichotomy, like you're just going for it because you have to survive one, like survival instincts are in and, you know, very active because you gotta make rent, you gotta be able to eat, you know? So getting that work, you know, is, is sort of a, you know, life or death type thing. Did your filmmaking career begin when you were in high school? I wouldn't necessarily call it like a filmmaking career, um, but it was definitely me sort of dipping my toe into uh, the visual arts, I guess, and, and telling stories on screen. Um, I was very, very motivated and <laughs> excited by the show Jackass back in the day. Um, so when I was, you know, like a, sophomore and junior and senior, my friends and I would go out and uh, just do our own video, you know? Like, oh, let's do stunts, let's do stupid stuff, let's jump into bushes and do all that. 
Um, and we sort of incorporated that when I was in the video production course in my senior year. We incorporated that, you know, into the morning announcements. Um, so it was me and my buddy Ken, uh, and we had a show called Adam and Ken out on the town. And we decided to take the morning announcements for every Friday just out into Circle Pines, Minnesota. Um, and instead of, you know, having them just in the studio every day. So we decided to just be creative and see what we can get away with. Go out, like talk to people, get random people to read the announcements, film funny skits, have funny stuff going on in the background. And uh, the, the teacher sort of let it happen, <laughs> which was amazing because we were doing, you know, like crazy weird stuff. Um, but people really, you know, the kids, they loved it, you know? And that was the first time that I was like, I like doing this. I like being on camera and I like performing and I like coming up with creative concepts and executing them. And, uh, you know, it, it helped that, you know, we were looked at as sort of like super popular, you know, like walking around like, oh, it's Adam and Ken, look at them. And, you know, being like a nerd and a band nerd, you know, like having that sort of notoriety senior year was kind of fun. So, you know, obviously that sort of pumps up your confidence um, and made me go like, all right, maybe this is something that I can do. So that's what, what took me to Drake University um, is that like, all right, let me do like radio and TV production. Cause like, maybe I want to have a radio show or maybe I want to be an on-camera personality. Like, hey, what, do, what exactly do I want to do? Do I want to get into news maybe? I don't know. Um, so I went to Drake, got into the journalism program and very quickly realized that uh, I was not cut out for news because I had an assignment to like go and shoot like a news story and I went out and I was like, all right, cool. Like I can shoot all this great stuff, report on this thing. And I, I come back with the footage and we edit it together. And the producers uh, of the show were like, oh, we can't use this. Like none of this footage is usable because you're like, you're taking the camera and you're walking through trees and you're doing all this like artsy stuff. Like that's not news. Like we need you to put a tripod down and then pan it from left to right you know, watching students walk across the campus like that for news, you know, getting B-roll, that's what it's all about. And I was, that was so not my taste, but it was great having them go like, no, thank you. That made me go, okay, well, maybe that's not like for me, you know, like news is not for me. So, you know, maybe, maybe film or something more creative is, is uh, what's for me. So I think it was, uh, my sophomore year where Drake, who doesn't have a film program or didn't at the time, uh, decided to have their very own uh, film festival. And I was like, well, that's cool. Like my buddies and I, cause we were, you know, freshman year shooting more jackass videos. And we decided to make a little, you know, like business out of it. So we would make like an hour long compilation of videos. And then uh, we made a DVD of it designed the box, like got the discs made, did all that and started selling it on campus, like had our own little, you know, side hustle. Um, we decided sophomore year to go ahead and like just shoot like an actual narrative. Um, so I wrote it, I directed it. It was like a small five minute black and white thing. Um, and uh, I remember shooting it. I remember the exact spot that I was at. We were in this like hallway in the basement of, of the residence hall that we were at. And I remember after getting one take and having like a full day of doing this behind me going like this, this is amazing. Like this feeling that I'm feeling, 
like I can't replicate it. I've never felt it before. Like I need this in my life because if this is how I feel making a movie, like there's no better feeling. There's nothing else I can do. Nothing else will compare and nothing else has. And that's why since that time, you know, I, I head first just went into it. Like I need to make films because it makes me feel something that I can't even really describe, but it makes me feel like the most pure version of myself. Like that's the best part is, is knowing that when I'm on set, when I'm shooting, when I'm working with actors, working with crew, making something, I never feel better. I never feel more like myself. And to be able to be yourself fully is a gift that I don't know if a lot of people have or get to have. And I wish everybody would have that. But filmmaking is, is that for me. So that's why I keep doing it. And that's why I'm in love with it. And that's why, that's what drives me every day. At what point when you were at Drake University did you know you were going to come to LA? Oh yeah, um, so that's a good question. Um, I think I was thinking about dropping out in freshman year because like I, I, I sort of, you know, I kind of got that bug about like, well maybe, maybe this is not the right place for me. And I had this advisor, uh, Todd Evans, who was great and he convinced me like just stay in it. You know, just, just keep doing it. Like you'll learn a lot here. It may not be a film school, but in this program you'll really learn a lot. And so I, I did and I stuck into it. And I'm happy that I did um, because it really allowed me when um, I was in my senior year to go ahead and take the chance to like to get an internship in Los Angeles. And my dad knew somebody, knew somebody who lived out here and had access to the UTA job list. I have no idea if that's still a thing, but it was full of like jobs and uh, internships and everything. And so I just started submitting internships like mad, like get me out there for a summer. I need a summer internship. I need to know if Los Angeles is right for me, you know, because there were a couple other places that were filmmaker friendly. I think Austin was a place that I was thinking about. Doing it in Minnesota wasn't a thing. Like back in the day, yeah, there, there wasn't really a lot of people doing film in Minnesota. I think that has changed um, because I've met a lot of people out, of here, out here that are from Minnesota. And so it seems like filmmaking is, is sort of catching on, which is fantastic. Um, but it was, it was getting an internship and landing that, um, you know, in that summer, the summer of 2006 it was, uh, that I was able to come out. And, uh, you know, it was a terrifying thing to do you know, for me. Going from Minnesota, you know, like generally a smaller town. I didn't live in the Twin Cities. I lived, you know, in a suburb like 20 minutes north. And, uh, you know, like you, <laughs> you come to LA and you're on the 10. And, <laughs> and I remember going like, where's the Hollywood sign? And I was looking to my right because I saw the mountains. I was like, where's the Hollywood sign? And in classic, this is what happens when you first come to LA story. I look forward and traffic had stopped oh, and I no. rear-ended somebody. Oh my yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't a bad rear-ending. It was just a bump. But that was my introduction to LA is getting into traffic on the 10 and rear-ending somebody, which everybody should have. And I'm sure so many people do. But, um, but yeah, after that, you know, and sort of getting my bearings in LA, um, 
I very quickly found over the summer that like the town was for me, you know, like it, it fit my vibe. It was full of people who were like me, you know, who were passionate about film, passionate about entertainment, you know, interesting, creative, artsy, hard workers, you know, and so diverse. And that's, that's the one thing that I learned about like being on set is that like you meet so many different people from so many walks of life, you know, from like the craftsmen, you know, in the art department to the grips, you know, to the camera people, like those are all very different people, you know, different types of people want to be grips versus want to be camera nerds versus, you know, or set decorators or costumers or, you know, the ADs, like it's, it's a lot of different people, but it's great. And how all of those disparate personalities sort of come together and like make something that can be transcendent. Like that is, is kind of the beauty of making films. So it's 2006, you're driving around, you're, you're feeling good, mm -hmm. you know, wind in your hair, and then the recession hits. Yeah. And what happens then? Yeah, so um, I had been doing PA work, um, you know, going from various project to various project, big projects to small projects, and unpaid project to semi-paid projects and stuff like that. Um, and I remember it, it was around the recession and the writer's strike um, and I had just done a, a stint as a director's assistant on indie feature, which was super fun, and I learned a lot. Um, and I was doing reality TV, which I never thought that I would do, but like somebody offered me a gig, and when you need a gig, you take a gig. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was a driver um, for one of these reality shows shot over in West Hollywood, you know, driving people from parking up into the mansion in the hills. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a trip. Um, but I, I realized like it was around Christmas time. I was sitting in this van pretty much all day. I was getting fat, you know, and I was, I, the biggest thing is that I wasn't able to, to write or even direct, that was, I mean, directing was like, I can't afford that, you know what I mean? Like, so I had to at least write, but I couldn't even do that because, you know, you're working five or six days a week, sometimes even seven, and it's at least 12 hours. You're definitely working, you know, 14, sometimes 16, you know, it's long, and you just come home exhausted. And I found that it sapped any sort of creative drive that I had in me, and I hated that because I was here to make stuff and I wasn't making stuff. So I had to, you know, really think about it and go, do I want to keep doing this? You know, I'm sitting at the top of this parking structure in West Hollywood in this passenger van, getting fat, being unhappy. Like I need something that's going to help me get to that goal of writing and directing full time. And that was an office job. That's what I figured out. It's like, you know what? I need the structure. I need the five day work week. I need nine to five, nine to six, but I need nights. I need weekends so that I can do what I want to do. Um, and I was able to find that. I, I reconnected with um, a buddy that I met at the internship. And uh, he was like, hey, just so happens that there's a receptionist spot open. Like, do you want that? And I was like, you know what? Yeah. You know, I was. And maybe 25 at the time, you know, like two or three years doing PA stuff. And it was, it, it mentally, it was like, okay, this is definitely starting over. It's starting at the bottom. It's a receptionist, you know, there's no, there's no 
you know, guarantee that it'll lead to anything. But I was like, you know what? Like, I will do it. And that's one of those risks that I was like, I have to take. You know, I have to take that risk. I will start from the bottom uh, again if I need to in order to make it that I can shoot and, and write and, and have that time. So I took the plunge um, and it worked out. And for me, getting an office job was what I needed to get my creative flow going and, and to keep it going, which is interesting because you would think doing the same thing or having you know that set schedule every day, like wouldn't that make you, you know, not as creative or, you know, if life was monotonous, you know, would it? Uh, but I found that uh, that I needed that and it helped me, you know, when I came home, like I could write and like, you know, I was much more creative. I find that so interesting that at 25 you knew you needed structure. That's mm -hmm. really, that's really interesting to me. Yeah. But before you thought it was going to be more of this like free for all, cool, I'm going to be making movies and then you realized oh, wait a minute, I need some type of discipline in order to be freer and creative. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, because the thing that I found was that when you're constantly looking for work and trying to survive, that's where your brain power goes. You know, you need to find that next job. You need to pay rent. You need to eat. That doesn't really leave a lot of time for like, what's this amazing short film concept or what's this feature I could do, you know? So it's a lot of hustling. And for me, it was hard to fit in, you know, a lot of the creative stuff when I was sort of struggling to survive. So it really was a, let me just get an office job that will pay me and I don't have to worry about that then. And that way, more brain power is freed up so then I can concentrate on, you know, what creative ideas do I have? How do I make this? Fascinating. And so since then, how many films have you made, shorts or features included? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've written a lot more than I've shot because shooting in LA is expensive. That's just the fact of life because you want to pay people, you know, crew members, a decent wage. Like, I feel like terrible and I couldn't make people like work for nothing. You know what I mean? That's, that's, after working for nothing, it's really hard for me to go like, hey, please work for nothing, because I know, I know what that's like. Um, so it's very expensive um, to shoot stuff. So I haven't shot a ton of things, um, but I have written an enormous amount of things. Um, and that was all in the service of getting those 10,000 hours in. So, you know, it was, it was breaking, you know, stories with my writing partner, Will, about this, like, sci-fi web series and we did that for a while and that helped us figure out like how to make worlds you know because everything started to turn to a more like franchise model and a world building model in terms of Hollywood um, so that was very helpful for us you know and it's learnings that we've used when we've gone to create you know TV shows um, it's like how do you create a world and how do you do that um, so yeah, yeah, I've written a bunch, written a bunch of features. Um, you TV crowdfunded? Shows. Sorry, and, yeah. You yeah. crowdfunded over 30 grand? Yes. Pretty so, amazing. So, you know, there was stuff <laughs> that we shot for low budget, but you know, when we got the opportunity to work with Heidi Moneymaker and Zoe Bell on this short film project called No Touching, which is an action horror piece um, about two girls who get into this haunted house where the people running it are misogynistic and start grabbing and touching them inappropriately. 
you don't do that to Zoe Bell or Heidi Moneymaker because <laughs> they're going to kick your ass. And that is, that is what happens in No Touching. They, they kick ass all throughout this haunted house. So it's very fun. But for that, I mean, we knew that it had to be done right, you know. So we didn't have access to 30 grand. So we had to resort to Kickstarter, which was great. We got on board Kickstarter and I was like, let's, let's try to fund it that way. And that um, was a p great education that I think everybody should try to do, um, even if they fail or not, because you learn what it takes to get people's eyes, you know, and how hard it is to get people to care and to give you money and, you know, wanting to give them rewards that are worth it. It's a whole exercise in marketing that's super invaluable um, and just how to hustle. But we did it for 15 days. Oh. Usually people go for 30. Wow. But we thought about it a bit and we're like, and we did a lot of research and we read a lot of other case studies of people who had done 30-day Kickstarters. And it seems as if for a 30-day Kickstarter, like there's a lot of like activity in the beginning. But then for about like in the middle section, like 15 days, it just hits a wall. And then when you're at the last like five or 10 days, then there's a lot more activity. So it's like, why not just cut out that middle section, cut out the middleman and just do 15 days and just hit it as hard as possible. You know, so all of it hopefully is that like, you know, furious period. Um, and so that was a huge gamble, trying to make 30 grand in 15 days. Wow. But uh, we eventually did it. And interestingly, there was still that lull right in the middle, you know? I think that's just the nature of it. There's a lot of fury at the beginning, a lot of fury at the end, no matter if it's 15 or 30 days. But, um, but it was close. It was real, really close. I remember uh, we had it set to end on noon of the final day of the 15th day. And the night before, we were still around three or four grand off. Oh. And it's like, how do we get three or four grand in 12 hours? It was, you know, I was like, this is it. This is not gonna happen. Like, we're done. You know, we're thinking about like, is there anybody that we can call? There was nobody that we can call. <laughs> Everybody had already chipped in, right? So I went to bed. And I was like, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. And I remember being woken up at around 5 a.m. Um, by my sister, who was texting me furiously. And I roll over. I was like, what? What is this? Like, what? what is, what's the issue? And I remember the text she sent. She's like, you did it. I was like, wait, what do you mean? And she's like, you, you have to look at your Kickstarter. You did it. And it turns out that in the middle of the night, uh, a gal, I think from New Zealand or, or England, um, who was a huge fan of Zoe Bell, had shipped in the money. And this is not somebody that we had reached out to. Um, this is not somebody that we knew. It was just somebody who saw this cool Zoe Bell project um, that somebody had randomly posted on a Xena messaging board, like a fan board for Xena. Um, like nothing that we had reached out to. Wow. It's just somebody got a hold of it and like, you know, fate sort of took over. But this, this gal was just like, I'll put you over the edge. And she did it. And I am so thankful um, because we were able to make it. 
And that feeling is an amazing feeling. Um, and yeah, and the product, you know, I, I think the final film turned out pretty darn good. Um, so I'm glad that it exists, you know, but it wouldn't have existed if not for everybody who chipped in and shared it and helped out. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. Very cool. But even having a full-time job, you've mm -hmm. been able to do at least one feature, Yep. a few shorts, I guess, and then raise a little over 30000 right, with your, yeah. your partner? Yep. Um, so that's with a full-time job. Yes, So is. here, most people have that opinion, and I know I've been of that opinion myself at, at times, mm -hmm. where, yeah, that's, that's like the creativity killer. But it sounds like for some people, though, it's not. You need the discipline, yeah. and look how productive you've been. I mean, that's pretty... Most people just do sort of one and done, and mm -hmm. that's it, you know? I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, um, and that's... It's just what, what I need, you know? And no matter what job it is, this is what I've learned, no matter what job that I have, because my passion for filmmaking and my drive for it and the need to do it is so strong, I will do it no matter what. And I think maybe now, if I were to have to get, you know, go back to PAing or something like that, it would obviously be harder, but I think I would still be able to do it. Um, I think that my mindset has changed enough over the years that it's like, I'm definitely to the point where I need to make this happen. You know, I need to make writing and directing a full-time job. I need to make that the thing um, because I can't be myself and I can't really accomplish what I need to accomplish for myself without doing that. You know, I, I can't have the filmmaking not be the focal point of my life because it's what I'm meant to do. And when you know that you're meant to do something, um, anything else just can't compare. Everything else is second best, you know? So it's really to that point now, sitting here almost 35, that I, I have to, I don't know what I have to do, but I have to keep doing it, you know? If I can find a way to fund more shorts, I'm going to um, because I have to keep doing it, you know? That feeling that love is too great and I need it more and more in my life. Adam, how do you know this is what you're meant to do, filmmaking? How do you know this is for you? That, uh, I think that's a tough question, but I also think uh, I know how I can answer that. Um, it's, it's the feeling that I get when I do it first and foremost, um, that it really makes me feel most like myself, you know, in, in other stuff, other jobs, in other situations in life. I definitely sometimes feel like I'm not myself, you know, or I can't be myself. I'm not my most authentic self, I think uh, someone very smart put it. Um, but, uh, but filmmaking, that's where that's where I really feel that. Um, and I love it, you know? It's, it's the sort of thing where in life, if you can choose the pain you're given, then that's better than having pain forced upon you. Um, and the fact that filmmaking has all of these highs and lows, and it can be exhilarating, and it can be super painful, um, you know, when you get rejected or when 
a project doesn't come together or a project that you've put out isn't received how you might want it to be received. Like the fact that those are the pain points that I can choose is, is kind of great because it's all part of it, you know? Like you can't have those sort of dizzying highs of like a film playing in a theater or a huge crowd at Fantasia loving No Touching. Like those are things that I'm gonna remember forever, you know? But with that comes the movie that comes out and no one cares about or those multiple, multiple rejections from film festivals that you think your film is like a sure thing and you get rejected and you never know why, you know, it's just you get the sorry, thanks for submitting. And that is crushing, you know, the, the, not, the not knowing, like were other films better? Was it just the, you know, the film festival's taste? Like you never know. Um, but telling stories and being able to impact people and make them think and make them feel like if you can make an audience feel like that is an amazing, almost addicting feeling, you know, making an audience laugh or cringe or shed a tear, um, which I, I'm hopeful my latest short can do. And a, a few friends who have seen it, it's, it's not quite released yet, but they've said that it has done that. And that is just sort of an honor and an amazing feeling um, to be able to connect with people. And I think that's really what it's all about is that through my work and through the stories that I wanna tell, I'm connecting with people, you know? Like I may go to a party or a place where I feel uncomfortable and it's kind of hard to talk to people, right? But with filmmaking, like it's that same sort of connection and it's easier to talk to people in some ways, you know, through storytelling. That's, that's interesting too. Yeah, I know, especially for people that, myself included, sometimes if I'm in a big group, I freeze up and I'm just not. Mm -hmm. But if it's about a film or a story, an author, it's different because it's a shared experience. Yeah. And so there's just a comfortable realm you can enter with that. Mm -hmm. um, with, with a film that you spend so much time with, whether it's a short or a feature, and then at some point, I would imagine there's almost like a letting go period where you're like, okay, it's out there, it's been received for better or worse, and now it's time for me to move on to something new. Can you talk about that process of where you, where you come to that point where you know it's time to now start something new? Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and the latest example of that, of that is my feature film, Broken Ceiling. Um, so that was the one that we shot in four days, um, the one that I needed to get done before you know, I turned 31. Um, that, uh, you know, after sort of a year of like tinkering and sending it to festivals and getting feedback from people and like doing a little bit of re-editing, it finally found a distributor, which was great. And it was put up on, you know, Amazon and iTunes and Tubi TV. And, uh, you know, in February, 2018, it came out and there was that big sort of like, oh, this is amazing. Like it's out there and you hit the social media really hard. And you know, we were able to get a review from the LA Times that was pretty complimentary. Great. And then we got a review from the Hollywood Reporter, which completely destroyed us. Um, but I, I made it a point to, to send emails to both the writers and thank them for that. Wow. You know, because uh, they spent an hour and a half of their time to review a super low budget movie that was shot in four days. 
you know, these are the film critics for the LA Times and the Hollywood Reporter. Like, I had to thank them for that because, you know, back in the day, I would never imagine having my movie, you know, having a picture of it and a review of it turn up in the hard copy of the LA Times, you know, that I could go down to the corner of Starbucks and I did, I literally did this. As soon as it came out, my distributor was like, hey, you're in the LA Times printed edition. I was like, oh my God, I need these printed editions. Where does one buy a newspaper nowadays? I don't know if these exist anymore. So I went to a couple places, the liquor store didn't have it. I was like, okay, cool. Went to the Starbucks, God bless them, they had them. So I was like, I need to buy all of your copies. And I did, I bought all six of them. Um, got some weird looks, but it's like, I don't care. I need this proof. <laughs> I got to have that moment that you hear about that like, you know, the review comes out in the trades and they go and they buy it from the newsstand. I got to have that, which was super cool. Um, so all of that was very exciting and, you know, getting people to watch it when it first came out, it was great. And, you know, you push and you push and you, you know, you get people to watch it and they start reviewing it on Amazon and like, that's exciting. And you get to see what people think of it as well. And then you're doing the outreach because you know you want to get some Rotten Tomatoes scores. Um, so you're reaching out and like pinging so many reviewers who you know don't necessarily have the time to review it. Um, so you're getting reviews here and there, and that helps, and that's great, and that's exciting. Um, and then you know it sort of starts to taper off. Like a few months in, it starts to slow down, um, and then. You start to think, well, what can I do to keep it going? You know, because you really want it to keep going because there's so many people that can still watch it. There's there's so many different audience members, you know, all around the globe, everywhere, you know. And so you're like, how do I reach them? How do I reach them? You know, what's the best way to do that? Um, and that can be successful or that can be not successful. Um, myself, I hired a social media firm to sort of run the Instagram account because. Oh. Social media is something that I'm not at all talented in and I don't have that much interest in. I know it's something that you have to do, but it is very, very hard to cut through the noise because everybody is posting everything at all hours, minutes, seconds of the day that trying to find your fans and keep them engaged is fairly exhausting and, uh, but can be ultimately rewarding, and, and it was, and there were definitely some successes. Um, but I found that I needed to start letting it go because, you know, you're not, if you can't really expand the, you know, the people that are on your Instagram, you know, the followers, for example, it's hard. you're just kind of screaming the same message at them over and over and you're not giving them anything new. So you have to try to keep them engaged with other things. It may not be movie focused, you know, like if your movie, you know, has some social commentary, then you can pull up stuff from the news and talk about that. Like there's a lot of ways to keep social media interesting instead of like always being like, watch my movie, because people are gonna turn that off uh, pretty quick. Um, but yeah, we did that for six months solid and had some decent results. I, I can't say that they were amazing results, you know. Um, but, it, you know, it worked. It worked for the most part. But after that, I realized that I had to, to let it go a little bit, you know? Like I couldn't keep pushing it. I, I would try to get reviews where I could, but that big push was sort of over and I needed to, to let it go and 
and work on something new, you know? Because I think for me, the worst thing that I could have done, like, is, is to keep pushing that. Like, if I, sitting here today, was still pushing Broken Ceiling super, super hard um, and not working on anything new and not trying to do that, then that would be a big mistake, I think, because, you know, it felt natural at the point, you know, it was about maybe about, yeah, about a year in that it had been on, you know, Amazon and Tubi TV and all those. And I was like, okay, like, I gotta push something else. And, and you gotta keep working on stuff, of course. Like, and through that time, I was definitely working on so many things in addition to, you know, trying to push the film. And that's why I had to hire that social media firm because I knew that I needed to be creating new stuff. Like, I knew that I needed to do a new short, you know? Another feature I would have loved to do, but the funding aspect is, is quite difficult to do. But I knew that I could, you know, self-fund another small short, do that, work on something else, just keep that going. Because the big thing was getting on set again. Because in 2015 was a heck of a year because we shot No Touching, um, no, we shot, we shot Broken Ceiling first in June. So I shot the feature Broken Ceiling before we shot No Touching, which was done in the fall. But imagine being able to shoot a feature and a short in the same year. Like, that's kind of a dream. Um, but then I didn't step behind the camera until February of this year, of 2019. You know? So that's three, four years of not directing. And I found that very hard. You know, I was writing a lot, but I wasn't behind the camera, you know, because... It's hard to squeeze in time to do that when you're trying to put out a feature and get people interested in that and then writing other projects, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it was good to get behind the camera again. How do you know if your film found the intended audience? Or maybe there is no intended audience. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just whoever likes the story. I mean, Broken Ceiling has a female protagonist. It's about a, a contentious workplace. It's male-driven, mm -hmm. different things that this person's fighting against. Mm -hmm. um, did you have a specific audience or anybody? You wanted just anybody who was interested in a good story to find it. Um, we did have a specific audience. Uh, I don't think that people who are really into sci-fi or horror would necessarily like it. Um, I needed to find the people that were into dramas, people who you know, worked office jobs, day jobs, women, women of color specifically, uh, because it's about a woman of color in a pri primarily white male-dominated workspace. Um, those were really, you know, the people, the true core audience for that. Um, and when we started seeing the sort of like engagement demographics on Instagram, that's what we found. It was interesting though, because it was, it was a sort of male-female split, like 52% female but very split between males and females. So it was great that a female empowerment story really had you know, legs with male eyes um, who were interested in that. And you wrote it as well. Correct? Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. What, what prompted you to write it, for, especially from a female perspective? Sure, sure. Um, the reason that I, I needed to tell the Broken Ceiling story is because I started writing it um, just based on sort of my general frustrations with, with how the world was working. And of course, 
the fact that I had not made a feature yet, you know? So I was very, just in general, frustrated. Um, and the story is born of that frustration. And you can see that sort of frustration in all the characters, you know? All the characters are sort of doing something that maybe they wouldn't want to do, you know? Or forced into these roles that maybe are not the best for them. Um, so I started writing this a little bit from my own perspective. Um, and then, um, you know, there was uh, a, a lot of social stuff that was going on at the time. Um, uh, the Ferguson, you know, shooting, that mm -hmm. happened, everything came out of that. And uh, it, it really sort of hit me, you know. It, it made me sort of open my eyes and go, you know what, like, I, I am, you know, a white male. And perhaps there are things that I didn't realize, you know, about ways that I've been helped out unknowingly, um, just being a white male, you know, what benefits have I had that maybe I wasn't aware of? And I realized that I didn't want to tell that story um, because I wanted to give a voice to you know, a character who maybe didn't have a voice. So that's why I, I decided, I, I completely revised what I was going for. And I decided that I would do something that, you know, at the time I was sort of afraid to do, you know, because, you know, with how society was and still is, it, it was sort of like, how dare I as a white male write, you know, from a perspective of a black female and a, and a black female story. Um, and that was, that was something that people were like, I feel uncomfortable with that. Like, because you don't know that experience. And truly, I did not know that experience at all. You know, who was I to, to write, you know, a story about a black female who had a hard time moving up, you know, breaking the glass ceiling in a corporate environment. Um, but what I did was research. I was like, I need to tell the story and I need to know, you know? So I did a lot of online research. I, I read a lot of stories about, you know, black women in the workplace, women growing up, um, talked to people, you know, really did as much research as I could do. And I wrote it, you know, sort of on a, on a wing and a prayer. Um, and I thought that it turned out pretty well. And then when we were getting into casting, um, we, I was meeting with uh, uh, the woman who would eventually become Angela, Karen Kendrick. Um, and I remember the first meeting that we had. She had read the script and I was kind of terrified to meet her <laughs> because I'm like, you know, what are you going to think of this story? Um, and I will forever remember what she said, but she goes, it's like you told my story, my personal story. And that was the highest compliment that I could get because all the research, all the hours put in, like it paid off. It was authentic, which is super important. And it spoke to her, which was the most important thing. Um, and yeah, she, she signed on and she was fantastic and amazing to work with. And I learned even more, you know, through working with her. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was a wonderful working relationship and, She's gone on to do amazing things and will very, very soon be an enormous, enormous star because she is so talented. So the fact that she wanted to work on this tiny project and, and felt connected to it 
was great. And I'm just super grateful that I was able to get her and the rest of the cast because, yeah, uh, I was very blessed with the performances and the actors. And that's something that, you know, people definitely call out when they review it. They love Karen. They love the other actors. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting to see them, you know, get that recognition, which they, they definitely deserve. Did people actually tell you don't tell this story? Like you don't have the right because you don't authentically know it or don't go there, man. Like just, just let it be. Like what, what did they say? Uh, it, it was all about the, how they felt uncomfortable that a white man was telling a black woman's story, you know? And, and I totally get that. I understand it because I did not, I did not know. I didn't grow up with that, you know? But the thing that I, I truly believe about writers um, and directors is that they are able to inhabit different points of view and different characters. Like you have to, to be able to write characters who are different from you. You have to empathize with them. You have to do the research. You have to learn about that. Like, and I think that writers are, are fully equipped to be able to, you know, write from somebody else's perspective, you know? Um, and I think we should, you know? I think that anybody should be able to write anything provided that they do the research and they do it authentically. That is 100% the most important thing. Like you have to immerse yourself, you have to do the research and you have to make sure that it is true. Otherwise, otherwise, you shouldn't do it. And maybe that's what they were afraid of, that I was just going to assume or imagine what it would have been like to be a black woman in you know, a white male dominated industry. Um, but I didn't, I did the work because I had to make it true. And, and I hope that that comes out. And then were there people that said, thank you for doing this. I know this is not where you live, so to speak, in headspace, but yeah. thank you for trying to, to tell someone else a story that needs to be told? Yeah, I mean, in the reviews, like, uh, honestly, the, the best reviews that I got were women of color, you know, and people of color reviewing it and going, this is truthful. This strikes a chord. The fact that it connected with them is the highest compliment, the highest praise that I can get. And when you said you got some reviews that weren't favorable, was it of that nature or was it other things? It was actually other things. Oh, I see. Okay. Which is, which okay. is kind of nice. Yeah. All of the criticisms were directed at me, <laughs> you know, okay. in terms of like, you know, maybe the story could have used this. Like a lot of it um, was a little bit story based about like, well, you know, because it is so hard to try to tell, you know, a story in one location, it is so hard. And I don't know if I hit it out of the park. I think I did a decent job, um, but trying to, you know, ring 90 minutes out of one location is so hard. Um, so I did my best, but I've been knocked a little bit for that. Um, but, but praised for the directing, which, I appreciate and the thing that I appreciate about those reviews is that it makes me go, oh great, there's something that I can work on. There's something that I may be lacking that um, I need to be better at and that I found is like just classic dramatic narrative structure, like the art of dramatic writing. That's what I've been doing, you know, for the past six months or to a year is just 
really nailing that aspect, you know, because I can do visuals, I can work with actors, I can do this, I can do that. But like really getting those fundamental tenets of storytelling is, is very important, at least for me. And without those reviews that were negative, you know, how do you learn? You know, because I wouldn't have. If everybody would have gone, oh, this is great, keep it up, don't change, you don't learn anything from that. And I want to keep getting better. So the fact that there were criticisms leveled at me, it's like, thank you. Now I can make the next one even better because I don't want to be treading water. Like I need the next one to be better. And the latest short I did, I can say with certainty that it is better than the feature that I did, you know? And the feature I still think is very good, but the fact that I can do a new project and for myself, know that there's a benchmark of getting better, that's, you know, that's of paramount importance to me. How do you know a protagonist is a character you want to write about? Like, how do you know you're really connected to that protagonist? Hmm, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think for me, it comes from a little bit of the story and about what I want to say at that time. Um, I don't tend to tend to go with, you know, tropes of characters. I, I really go with like, what's the situation and what character can be tested the most in that situation, you know? Um, uh, the most recent thing that uh, my writing partner Will and I have done is a horror feature with a lot of like very social, you know, very topical social commentary. And that just came out of, you know, a specific, very interesting idea of horror, but also the fact that right now um, there's a lot of, of uh, you know, disparity in terms of people's pay um, just in the world. You know, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and that middle class is disappearing and everything. And that's been very top of mind for me. Um, so I wanted a protagonist for this horror script that really like embodied that. And somebody like this blue collar worker in Chicago that we can all identify with and get behind because I, I think, at least I do, but I think that we all feel like we are that person right now, you know? Like the corporations, you know, are, they're just stepping down on us and politics is stepping down on us. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of unrest and, and, and upheaval, I think, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things that the situation sort of can dictate that. And, and it's something that I'm finding that having very socially conscious statements is something that I really want to put out there. Um, because I think that, I mean, films are, are a great medium um, that, you know, you can reach a lot of people with. And if I can put messages in there you know, that will make people think of something a different way, you know, like thinking about the disparity between black people and white people in, uh, you know, in a corporate environment. Um, or, you know, with no touching, it was about, you know, the reach of misogyny, you know. Uh, I, I really want topical, you know, things that people can just really sink their teeth into and make them think. That's, that's my big goal with, with my current projects, at least. What were the movies growing up that were like that, that made you 
think about sort of social commentary. Like I like Norma Ray comes to mind. I know mm. that's before my time even, but mm -hmm. you know, it's not just a feminist story, but it's also a story about a small town, yeah. people being scared to lose their jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the only place for them to work. Yeah. And being like just they they you know, all of them are sick and different things are happening. Mm -hmm. But what what different uh, films growing up? Sure. Um I think for me what's interesting is that it wasn't really like dramas or things like that. I found those messages in like sci-fi and, and popcorn films at the time. So The Matrix was like the first one that really opened my mind to, you know, the thought of, uh, you know, what if none of this is real? You know, like just the mind expanding aspect of like really looking at the systems that we have and, and trying to figure out like, how much of this is real, how much of it is not. Um, and that continues on with V for Vendetta, which I think is, you know, an amazing piece that again, really gets you thinking, um, even though it's, you know, like comic book and action and that's stuff that I just love and I'm drawn to. But the ones that feed in that social commentary are, are great. And Children of Men is another example of just, you know, a sort of cautionary tale. <laughs> about the future. Um, so those are the ones that I would say really sort of did a great job of, of you know, it's popcorn movies, but sneaking in um, some very important social commentary. I've been on a Raymond Chandler kick. And so I've been mm. researching just different panels and this USC panel talked about his writings. And it just said that so much of noir was a, a commentary on, on really the working class versus the wealthy, especially in LA in the 30s and mm. all this corruption and, and just mm -hmm. sort of just, you know, paid off politicians versus sort of the working man. Yeah. And so it's just interesting because you wouldn't totally, you see it as more of just a, a mystery, but that woven in is this commentary. So. Yeah, and that's, that's the real great Trojan horse aspect of film. It's like people are there to be entertained, but if you can, you know, sort of trick them a little bit and uh, and give them a little dose of social commentary that they'll go out going like, what was that actually about? Or I'm thinking about that now, or opens their eyes like, that's great, that's a wonderful trick. How long did it take you to write Broken Ceiling, the script? It took me about a month to write the first draft. Um, and then I would say another month and a half of rewrites to really get it to a filmable spot. And where would you write it? Uh, at, at home, in my office, on my computer. So knowing you had the day job and so now you knew what time you could work on it, did you have specific times you would? Yeah, it was pretty much, when I get in the zone of writing, um, I need to do it like every day. So I, I found myself coming home, having dinner, talking with my wife, then going to write, and then going to bed. Waking up, going to work, doing that same thing again until the thing was completed. And there were at points where I would do it in the morning as well as the night. I would wake up in the morning because my head was just like burning, like I've got to get this stuff out there. So I'd wake up, write, go to work, come home, eat, write, go to bed, <laughs> etc. Do you finish most everything that you start? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, because to not finish something really bothers me. Um, it's tough seeing like, you know, half written scripts. Like I, I don't actually have any like non-written scripts. Like they're all written, not to say that they're all great. 
you know, or that they don't need rewrites because a lot of them do. But um, but I need to at least have that full like 90, 100 pages or whatever done. And like projects, like I, I definitely won't start something that I can't finish because I need not only like to check it off my mental list, but to sort of follow through and to follow through, not for anybody, you know, like I'm not doing this for anybody, but for myself. That's the most important thing. Like when I set a goal or a date, um, I'm gonna do it, you know? And what's interesting is that I find that people are kind of shocked by that. Um, my crew on, on my latest short that I shot in February called Losing Sight, um, I had a very quick time frame on it. It's like, we're gonna shoot it in one day. Here's when I need to have the edit done. Here's when this is done. Like I, I have a couple of months, I have to get it done, you know? They're, and they're like, well, what for? And I'm like, uh, I mean, festivals probably, but like, you know, <laughs> I just need to get it done. And that was the time that I had allotted myself. And, you know, I remember a few of them being just sort of like shocked when it came in. They're like, oh, it's done. Because I guess they're used to people maybe taking their time uh, with projects or just abandoning them or not finishing them. And I just... That's unthinkable to me because like people are putting their time and energy into something and I want to be able to go ahead and have it out there, you know, for them and for me, especially like it's got to get done, you know, no matter what. When you wrote Broken Ceiling, did you know it would be one location? Yeah, I wrote it with one location in mind because I knew that I would only have like four days to shoot it. Cause that's all I could budget for, you know, again, very small budget. Um, so I liked the fact that, you know, having it in one location meant that we could really just crank through a feature and get it all done. Um, but also to, you know, just, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that one. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. And it was 4,000? that you spent on production? No, more than, oh, it was the, more. the budget was more than 4,000. Oh, Four see. was the days that we spent oh, shooting it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was done over two weekends. So again, working during the week, shooting over the weekend, wow. working during the week, shooting over the weekend. Those were, those were some harried, like, you know, couple weekends in a row. Um, but yeah, it was great. And, and for the one location, I knew that to be able to shoot 90 pages in four days, I had to be very strategic with it. So the one, the biggest and most important thing that I decided to do was to shoot with natural lighting because it was set in an office space and I wanted that very oppressive fluorescent look. Um, and originally I had designed it that it was just gonna be like, almost like Wes Anderson-y in terms of like long takes and a lot of like monologues and, and it's very much, and people have attributed it to feeling more um, like a stage play than anything, um, which is, is kind of how it was written. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like doing all natural lighting and rehearsing the actors for two straight weeks ahead of time, because letting everybody know we have four days, we're not gonna get a lot of takes, you know? So we'll get a couple of them, but like, let's get everything out through rehearsal. And so we did that and, and everybody was on board for that in game. And that's really how we were able to accomplish it. Like everybody came in on the first day knowing what they had to do. We didn't have to on the day 
sort of experiment and, and try and fail. Like we had done all that. Like we knew where we needed to be. We knew where we were going. And there was a lot of dialogue, a hell of a lot of dialogue and a couple like long monologues, you know, it was very much, I had to treat it more like a theater exercise in terms of, you know, the prep than anything. And I think you had said in something that I read, it might've been for, for Film Courage or, or in, in your video diary, that the power dynamics changed. Mm -hmm. And so the way you shot it changed. Did you also write that into the script or was that something that during those four days you came up with? Um, that happened uh, post writing of the script, but through the storyboarding phase. That is something that I really had to do because when you're limited on time, you have to know exactly what you're gonna shoot. Um, so I storyboarded the heck out of that. Oh, and wow. then as always happens, you know, when you get on set, suddenly you have to throw that out, right? Um, and the director of photography, Jessica was, Jessica was great because uh, I had, you know, that, that thought in mind of like, all right, I'll do this long takes, Wes Anderson thing. And she's like, you know what? I think we can get more coverage. I think we can do more with this. And I was like, great, let's do that. So it was sort of an on the fly, like, let's get these shots, let's, let's do this, let's do that. So a lot of it sort of strayed a little bit from the storyboards and was improvisational in the moment. And the fact that we can move so fast because we didn't have to deal with like moving lights and everything allowed everybody to sort of like get going. So it was very creatively energizing um, and improvisational. It was a great time. So when you finished your first draft, um, who did you give it to to see? Like not only is, is the story good, but am I writing from the appropriate voice for this protagonist? Sure. Um, oh, I gave it to, uh, to a few people. Um, I, I gave it to, of course, like my writing partner, Will, for his notes. Um, my wife read it. She had a couple of friends, you know, who she knows, who she had them read. And, and it was really through, you know, her friends um, that let me go like, okay, like it is authentic. Like they are telling me, oh, this reads. I feel that. I understand that. Um, so it was really sort of casting it a little bit wider than I would. Like, I'm not going to have my wife's friends read every script. That doesn't, you know, make sense. <laughs> but, uh, but for that, it was important to make sure that like that litmus test, that initial test was, was like, okay, like I'm on the right track. It is getting there. It is truthful. Like, all right, good. I'm feeling, you know, on solid ground. And is it, you said heavy on dialogue? Yeah. So you're writing these different dialogue scenes. Are you... When you're driving to work, are you like thinking of this dialogue? Like, is it, are you on the 10 this time? You're definitely looking at the car in front of you, but, but you're like, no, she would say this. And I think he would, you know, like, is, is that where you're coming up with a lot of this rich dialogue? You know, some of it, but I, I found that a lot of it was coming out as I was writing. Um, I did a lot of outlining beforehand and I did a lot of character work beforehand. So the characters just started to exist in my brain and you know, in reality. Um, and so when I was writing things, like things would come out of Angela's mouth or Ken's mouth that I'm like, oh my God, like, wow, that's good. But I can't take credit for that. You know, like that's the characters and maybe this sounds crazy or not, but, no. um, but it's like those characters really came to life and were saying these things and I was, you know, sort of sometimes in awe at, at what they were saying. And I look back now and I'm like, 
yeah, I, I couldn't have written that. Like, how did I myself write that? It was the characters, you know, they came to life and they sort of made that, you know, happen. Can you talk about the character work? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, so for the character work for Broken Ceiling, um, I did that all freehand uh, because I found that there's a more, uh, you know, using less technology, more organic, you know, if I can sit there with a notepad and a pen, um, especially for the early stuff, I find that um, to just work for me in general. So I would just sit there and I knew the characters that I needed. Um, and I was like trying to figure out what, what are their dynamics, you know? It's four people in an office. They're stuck on this high pressure call on a Sunday, you know, so they're overworked. What types of characters, you know, would be best to bounce off each other? You know, like how do we get more drama in it? So I, I sort of pulled from my own life and pulled from people that I knew. And then I, you know, did a lot of online research, you know, going on, on blogs about business and blogs about, you know, just people in general and just reading about people and learning their stories and, and doing a hell of a lot of research with, you know, how people operate in the workplace. And, and it was more than just like, you know, let me look at these character stuff. It was just general writings, you know, from like, you know, the Harvard Business Review or stuff like that, just about workplaces in general. You know, even though I knew about a corporate environment, you know, being in it for so many years, um, all of that, you know, just ancillary research, things that you wouldn't think matter in terms of building the character, um, I used and that definitely informed the characters as I was building them. But it was, it was a lot of freehand, you know, a lot of just writing, trying to figure out who these characters were, you know, like if you have Angela, you know, who's the beleaguered assistant who's been there 10 years and who's never been promoted, like who's the guy that she's gonna hate, you know? And it's somebody who has been there only a short amount of time and who's had these opportunities and who's been pushed above her, you know? And how would she react and how would they react and what does he think of her and what does she think of him? And then, you know, off of that character, Tyler, who's a character that's threatening to him, you know? It's somebody even newer. Um, and how is that dynamic, you know? Does this character look at this older character sort of as a model? And is he sort of modeling also Tyler's bad behaviors? and you know the wrong things that he does and then of course you know the the big the big boss ken um who reagan wilson really knocked it out of the park with that character but you know what is for that character is like what is the worst possible boss you know i haven't had a lot of terrible bosses um i've been very lucky in that my bosses have been very good and helpful and, and supportive and wonderful so i was like what is you know a terrible boss in the movie whiplash was oh, one yeah. of those, you know, one of those things where it's like <laughs> that guy, you know, J.K. Simmons' character in Whiplash. He's awesome, yeah. Is such a bastard. And I was like, I kind of wanted that sort of like big villain. Like my goal with Ken was to make him sort of an iconic just bastard of cinema. And and I think that me and me and Reagan were able to sort of craft that character and, and make him sort of stand out. That's what I was going to ask you next, actually. You were reading my mind. What, what other movies did you watch? Like Swimming with Sharks? or yes. I know there's one with Parker Posey where she actually pit. She's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah. actually the female boss who's uh -huh. just... 
I think, I don't know if she's like in love with the male coworker, but she just becomes like this complete psycho. It's yeah. great to watch. She's yeah. fantastic. I mean like Whiplash, Swimming with Sharks, of course, Devil Wears Prada. Okay. Anything with like a terrible boss. I was like, I gotta, I gotta see how they did it. Like, let, let me gain something from that. Right, interesting. Yeah. So you had written many short screenplays before. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure how many features you'd written, but was your process the same for all of them when you uh, started out? My process changed um, a bit as I was going. There was definitely a phase um, in my mid-20s where I brought out the cork board and started doing like the cue cards you know, on the board, like, all right, here's act one, here are the scenes in it, here's act two, etc. Um, and I sort of fell away from that because what I found, and this is the process that I found on Broken Ceiling that really worked for me, was just going into a Word doc and making a very descriptive outline. I think the outline for the film was about 20 pages. Oh, wow. Um, and I would, I would write like one through 10, what's happening there? 11 through 20 and just break it sort of down, you know, because I needed to make sure that the audience was kept on their toes throughout the entire thing. So I needed to know, okay, like what's going on in this 10 minute sequence? What's going on in the next 20 minutes? How do I make that different from that? How do I make these twists? Like, where does this come into the thing? Like making it so that it's the most dramatic and enjoyable thing that it can be. Um, but I found, and that's what I've used ever since, is like just making, almost pre-writing the movie, which is interesting. I'll just, you know, free type and, and write everything. Sometimes there's dialogue included, sometimes there's not, sometimes it's just descriptions. But if dialogue comes out, write that down. It's a good starting point. But I just go through and, you know, they, they range from 10 to 20 to sometimes 30 pages based on the project or how long it is. But I really like writing out the movie in full so I can have that Word doc open as I'm writing the script and sort of like compare and go, okay, this is working, this is working, or changing things if, if I find that something doesn't work all of a sudden. Do you write most of your projects with Will? Yeah, most of them Will and I have written. How did you meet Will? Uh, we met at the, uh, at the internship um, oh, at the production company that I worked for. Um, and it was through our, you know, working together at the company that uh, we forged this creative bond and, you know, it was early on and we've just sort of continued since. So when you, let's suppose you meet up, I don't know, for coffee or I don't know how you discuss ideas, but mm -hmm. how do you know that an idea is viable, that it's actually going to last through the whole process? Mm. Um, I think that if it excites me or excites us, that's a good starting point. Um, is it an idea that I haven't heard of before? Is it something that perhaps is topical or perhaps is something that had been done before but has fallen out of fashion and could use a resurgence? You know, like what's, it's thinking about like, you know, keeping your finger on the pulse, what's gonna be current now, but also because film takes so long to get done, what's gonna be still relevant like three years from now? And sometimes you can't gauge that and you can't know that. So in terms of viability for me, it's really boils down to like what I need to say, you know, like what it, what is current in me and what's interesting in that is that when I and we have followed that, 
we come up with things like no touching that, you know, back in 2016 when that came out, um, this was before the Me Too movement, right? But it was sort of like in that realm of just seeing where the wind was blowing. Broken ceiling, sort of same thing, like made that before like everybody else had in a way caught on and it'd become a bigger thing. So not to say that we're, you know, like predicting the future, but it's just seeing what's going on and sort of catching those early, you know, that early wind of something. And then if it resonates with us going on and, and pushing it through, if it can excite us and hold our attention, because that's the thing. Sometimes you'll get an idea and uh, it's good for the moment. And then you realize that you can't commit everything that you need to commit to it. And then it can sort of like fall away and put in the slush pile, you know, for a rainy day. Where do you find your news? Like, are you going, you're listening to NPR? Where, where are you finding like stuff that's topical? Hmm. Just to sort of like open your mind and say like, oh wow, this is happening. This seems to be a trend, okay. Sure, yeah, uh, just general, like a little bit of NPR, some CNN, um, just online blogs and news sites and stuff like that. Podcasts are great, you know, for keeping up with that stuff. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah is, is wonderful too. Um, Bill Maher in terms of like politics, you know, like sort of mixing the, the news with like comedy and stuff. I, I find that's, that's helpful because it gives you like a different perspective on it. Um, and they're the ones, you know, comedians in general that kind of like tell the truth a bit more. Um, which I think is always good and it's entertaining, entertaining anyway. Right. What do you think about someone like a Lenny Bruce who was penalized for sort of telling the truth and now mm. we're in a new culture where that's embraced, but at that time, you know, his shows were being, you know, I mean, how, how do you feel about that? That at one time it was taboo to sort of speak the truth in that sense. Yeah. Not that it's totally embraced now, but. Right. <laughs> Um, but more so, it's okay to sort of have a snarky take on the truth. Yeah. Whereas yeah. back in the day, it was far too offensive. Sure. Um, I think it's good that those sort of barriers have broken down a bit. Um, I think that people definitely appreciate and I think they need the truth um, because there's a lot of misinformation and people are being fed things you know, inside their own bubble that they believe to be true. And I think that's, you know, something that's sort of dividing us right now. Um, so it's always good to sort of see what other people are talking about or where they're getting their news, for example. Um, but yeah, I, I think that we're more to a place where we can be more honest, but there's still certain things that, you know, as you mentioned, like, it's not fully embraced right now. I think maybe we might be backtracking a little bit into, you know, you can't say certain things, otherwise the Twitter mob is going to get you and then <laughs> you're screwed. Yeah. Which, you know, as, as an artist is an interesting thing to deal with. Um, not that I've had to deal with it, but for the people that have, I, I can imagine how trying that is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's sort of a tough line to walk nowadays. Yeah, and it's tough too because you click on one story and now that reality is continually fed back because mm -hmm. that algorithm thinks, oh, this is what you want to see. Okay, right. this is what's in Karen's feed. This is what's in Adam's feed. So we're going to feed him more of that. We're going to mm -hmm. feed her more of that. So it, you're only fed back more of your own beliefs. Yeah. And so it's, it's just interesting because 
could be a distorted reality on my part, and I could be sure. clicking on things that the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. But mm -hmm. yeah, you're right about the, the mob coming after you. <laughs> what do you think are your strengths, and what do you think you could work more on in terms of filmmaking, storytelling? Sure. Um, I think my strengths are in uh, thinking in visual terms, uh, definitely being able to, you know, put together a series of images into something that's cohesive and affecting, I think is one of my strongest suits. Um, working with actors, I've definitely been getting better at. It's something that I wanted to work on, you know, just in general, how to speak to actors, how to talk to them, how to give them what they need, having the confidence, you know, to work with that. Um, in terms of writing, I, I think uh, my character work is really solid and my dialogue I think is very good as well. Uh, it's story structure that is probably something that I'm a little weaker at um, because in terms of like that classic sort of Aristotle or Plato sense, um, I, could, I could stand to, you know, do a little bit more uh, figuring out about like, you know, what makes this structure work? Because classic structure, you know, works for a reason. And, you know, like as Shakespeare sort of shows, it's the basis of, you know, all good storytelling. So sort of, you know, going away from the, the young man conventions of like breaking conventions without really understanding the conventions. Um, so that's something that I've definitely been working on and as, you know, something that I could, you know, I'm a bit weak at. Well, uh, why do you think so? Just someone told you that or you just look at your work and, and you feel that way or? Um, I think honestly, some of the reviews of Broken Ceiling sort of brought that to light uh, where they're like, hey, you know, like the directing's great, the acting's great, like the dialogue, but some of the story points were fumbled to the film's detriment. That is a quote from, <laughs> I don't know if that's the Hollywood Reporter one. Oh, okay. Um, but it's like, okay, yeah, like story points, like figuring out how to keep something propulsive and dramatic, you know, like, how do you really do that well? And I think that's something that like, if a writer can do that, then they are golden and they'll get a ton of work. Um, but yeah, it's something that I've had to realize like, okay, like I'm focusing too much on like, you know, the characters and, and the dialogue and how do I get a really good sort of story structure in there. Have you read books on story structure? Are you into reading books on story structure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a few of them that are on my list. Um, I am currently reading The Art of Dramatic Writing, um, which Ron Howard recommends as, oh, nice. as something that he goes back to. Um, I got a subscription to Masterclass. Oh, great. Which mm -hmm. I highly recommend. I've learned a ton from Scorsese and Howard. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff there um which is pretty great and uh it's it's just the thing that i found is that i don't want to get comfortable with my knowledge because i don't know everything and i need to keep learning so reading books that i haven't read and doing these master class courses like keep learning is something that i, I really need to do because i only want to get better you know and i know that i'm not comfortable going like okay this is what i do and this is that, because that would make me stagnant and I can't, can't live with that.
Oh, what an interesting take. I like that. Most people wouldn't. Uh, two things I, I find very interesting that you're, you're grateful, however painful it was, to get a bad review and you thanked a person for that. Mm -hmm. And then not wanting to get stuck in your knowledge. Yeah. That's really interesting. I don't know if a lot of people think like that. Well, they should. <laughs> I mean, it's something that I knew. I was, you know, like I'm almost 35 and I could sit back and go, well, I've made a feature and I've made a bunch of shorts and like, I know what I'm doing. I'm good. But it's like, you know what? Like, get people to, to read your stuff and watch your stuff and give you real constructive feedback. You know, like the worst is when, when people are just like, oh, yeah, that was great. It's like, thank you for that. That feels good. But tell me what, tell me what I did wrong. What didn't work for you? What could have been better? Because I need to know that in order to get better because I want to make films at the highest level. And unless I am learning and consistently trying to improve myself, I'm not going to be able to do that. So there is no resting on, on my laurels. Like I will read anything and everything like right now, even though I'm not in production, on anything, it's still the same thing. And I've been doing this for 10 plus years where I will come home and you know I will write something or I will read something or I will write and read something like I did last night. You know, I cranked out a couple of chapters of that, did you know one of the lessons on masterclass and did a revision to the new short that I'm doing. You know, and that's all at night. And I'm lucky that I have the time that I can do that, you know, now. So I take, I try to take full advantage of that. So you read a little bit from The Art of Dramatic Writing. Yep. You watched one part of the masterclass mm -hmm. and then you worked on a, a short screenplay. Yep. Wow. It's pretty disciplined. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to be. If I want to get the most workout that I possibly can, like I have to keep doing that, you know? And of course, like I, you know, I'm not working all the time. Like you need breaks, you know, you need to watch movies, you need to go out, experience the world. Absolutely. You know, you can't just be doing that because then you're not getting the fuel from the world that can help you, you know, write and direct and think of new stories. Like that's super important. Like right now I'm not currently in the, the you know, trying to look for stories mode. Right now I'm in trying to figure out, okay, like what's truthful about, you know, the world of independent wrestling, right? Like that's where I'm in. So I'm in full on sort of research and writing mode and going to shows and talking with wrestlers and, and trying to figure that out, you know, so that this, this short film can really, you know, be something sort of special. And like right now, like it's, it's tough because I, I wrote the first draft and uh, I got a bunch of people excited about it. And that's super exciting because, you know, they're willing to sort of move heaven and earth and accommodate me and they want to see this made. And I wrote it and, you know, I sent it over to Will and he's like, eh, I have I have a lot of thoughts, you know, and he's a very good, harsh critic and he's very honest, you know, and it's totally what I need. You know, it's what I thrive on. And I know he thrives on it, too. Um, but it, it's sort of like right now, I'm like, OK, like, how do I make this work? Does it work? And that's the scariest part. Like I have a draft of something, I have people excited about it, but is it actually going to work? Did I, did I make this premise and there's a core tenant of it that's broken that I didn't realize until now that it's in front of me, you know? And if it is broken, how do I fix that? How do I make it something that works 
or is it completely broken and I shouldn't do it at all and I can't do it at all? Um, I hope that that's not the case. and I don't think it will be. It's just how do I get more creative? How do I figure out and target what the issues are and figure out how do I make that dramatically satisfying while sticking to the message, the reason why I'm making that. And that's the biggest point is, is you have to know why you're making it and you have to stick to that. You know, I was thinking of some other ideas about like, okay, I could take it this way. I could go that way. But I found that they were changing the tone and it wasn't exactly what I loved about it. And it didn't stick to the central reason why I'm so excited to tell this story. So you got to find out like where in the realm of other possibilities, can you make this thing better while retaining the reason why and the passion why you're making it? Did you wrestle in high school? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I wrestled, uh, in middle school and high school. Um, I was super small. I was the smallest guy on the team. I got my butt kicked a lot. I was pinned a lot. I lost a lot. Um, I only won two matches in my entire time. Um, but I think doing that really sort of set me up for this job and this career because there's so many losses that you have to figure out how to take a loss and how to learn from it. And I, you know, connecting those two things about like losing in wrestling and trying to figure out how to get better and getting a bad review in a film and going, okay, well, how do I get better the next time? Like those are all connected, you know? So very early on, I think that's where I got this sense of like, tell me, you know, what's wrong. Let me fail. I'm okay with failing. I'm okay with rejection. You know, it hurts, but it doesn't break me and it doesn't stop me. You know, it only makes me want to get better and do better. And those are public failures too. So you're oh, yeah. comparing the two wrestling and, and filmmaking <laughs> yeah. and, and learning how and you got to get back up and I don't know if you shake hands or whatever, but mm-hmm. then it sounds like that's what you've already put into practice. Yeah, it definitely is. So you've decided you want to tell this wrestling story and it's a short film. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something that I think could be turned into a feature at some point, but like a short is definitely right for this idea right now. And it's set in the, in the world of independent wrestling, um, which is something that I love. I love wrestling. I love WWE. I love independent wrestling. Um, so, you know, being able to meet the wrestlers and, and see what they go through on an independent level, the grind that they have to do, you know, the fact that they have to spend 20 minutes breaking their body, entertaining fans, and then they're done. And right after, they go out to the lobby of the VFW or the small hall that they're wrestling at and have to sell merch. You know, they're dripping sweat, they're injured, they're aching, and they have to, you know, put on a happy face and like, you know, sell some t-shirts and glossies and like take pictures. And it's just, it's amazing because like the passion that they have for that, I totally identify with. And I attribute it to the passion that I have for filmmaking. Did you see the documentary for um, the story that prompted fighting with my family with Paige? Uh, I did not see the documentary. I still need to. I saw Fighting with My Family. It was cool. It is really great. Stephen Merchant did a such such a good job with that. 
He's the screenwriter? Yeah, screenwriter and, and actor. And director. And he's an actor. I think he, he, he was shows in the up scene. in the scene. Well. Yes, yeah. hilarious as one of the dads, I think. Yeah, and I actually, <laughs> not, that, not that I'm in fighting with my family. However, when they shoot the very end, uh, you know, the sort of like wrestling match between Paige and AJ Lee, um, they shot it after an episode of Monday Night Raw, which I was at. Oh, cool. So I was able to go and like see them actually shoot, you know, this scene between them and how they only had an hour. And how they had to, you know, get the crowd going because the live crowd was there and how they had to shoot specific things and how quickly they worked. It was fascinating. Yeah, I think it's on YouTube, the documentary. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier about creating story worlds. Where did that come from? Where did that occur to you? Most people probably don't think, again, in those terms. Mm-hmm. Where, where is this coming from, the story world idea? Sure. Um, well, uh, Will and I, uh, we had this idea for the sci-fi series. So we were pretty interested in how do we make a world, a sci-fi world that doesn't exist yet. You know, like, because there have been great iconic sci-fi worlds created and we wanted to do something sort of on that level. Um, but we had to figure out, like, how to build a world, which is a, a super hard and fascinating thing to do. You know, so it's like if if there's this technology that we create, like, how does that affect the world? You know, uh, let's let's try to build that up. You know, so we we started thinking about you know, the macro stuff like how does politics work? How does religion work? How are people? How does this technology affect them? Um, And you just sort of go out in these branches and and try to nail down this world because you have to be super specific, you know, because you need to know how everything operates, you know, how people would react in this world. Do they speak differently? Um, did this piece of technology alter it in that way? Um, you know, and, and doing all of that work. And we spent, I would say, a solid six months just building the world before we even wrote the story. You know, we had a general idea of what we wanted the story to be, you know, going back to like what we're trying to say. Um, but we had to really flesh out this world and figure out what would work and what didn't work and how it was different from other things and and how it had touch points of similarities so it's not so alien that people, you know, are sort of thrown by it and can't get into it. Um, But yeah, a full at least six months trying to create this thing in order to just start thinking about the story and the characters that would really populate it. Do you ever listen to some of the science fiction authors or or screenwriters on how they've like a Philip K. Dick or whatever on how they would create worlds or, or just the headspace they were in. I realized some of it was maybe chemically mm-hmm. induced mm-hmm. with some, but you know, even like Ursula K. Le Guin, just, mm-hmm. she was a mother of four and then she's coming up with these amazing worlds. I don't know how she's doing it. Um, and then seems incredibly sane in these interviews, mm-hmm. you know, and, and do you ever listen to, to just these people in their process? You know, I haven't really. Um, it was sort of the thing where we just made what we thought would be a good process ourselves. Like, let's just sort of blue sky this. And it was just a series of long conversations and, you know, just figuring out what we thought would work and, and what sort of bumped against what could work. Maybe it's best you didn't because then you might try to emulate 
sure. that style, and mm -hmm. then and then it's too cliche, and, right, right? And then it's like, oh, I see what they were going for. They were trying to do, you know, Scanner Darkly or something, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Have you carried that world building over into other projects, or it's just for this one that you're working on specifically now with Will? I think um, maybe not the world building itself, but how we created um, sort of one a working relationship and and how we thought of ideas and stories i think that's what we really took for it you know for example um i didn't need to create this whole like big world document for broken ceiling because it's you know set in now in an industry that i know that i'm you know aware of um so for something like that i didn't need to do um you know if something's set in in present day or in the world you don't necessarily have to do that however for this period piece uh, pilot about miners that we wrote, we did have to create a world there too because you know it's set in the 1920s, which we obviously didn't live through. Um, and then it was like, well, do we want to make a heightened version of that? Do we want to you know stick straight to the historical accuracy? Um, so that was something that was sort of a follow-up project to that, where you know. Even though it's it's a period piece, we still had to sort of create that world, like how these characters would live. So it really depends on on the story and where it is in time. And I, I assume that if I was going to make something, uh, you know, in present day, that was something that I didn't even know about, you know, set in another country or whatever, I'd have to, I would have to do that same sort of world building as well, you know, based on research, of course. Do you ever put a time limit? on your research? Because I would imagine it would become extremely fun. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I'm not, <laughs> as much as I've had to do research, it's not my favorite part. Um, I really want to get to the writing and the story breaking and the character stuff. Um, but uh, but yeah, there there is a thing, and, and this goes not only for world building research, but character research, there is such a thing as too much research, you know? Like, for example, you don't need to necessarily know what a character was doing when they were eight years old, right? You may not need to create that much of a character background or history if this character is in their 30s, you know, and it's set over the course of a week. Like, how much is that really gonna inform you or is it the type of thing where you're gonna to wanna to find a way to shoehorn in that memory from you know when they were eight years old into the scene because you did the work? So I think it's, it's a very interesting sort of dichotomy of how much is too much, research what you need, don't over-research, and, and make sure that you're actually getting those pages written. Why are limitations on film sets actually a good thing in your mind? Because that is what brings out creativity. Having limitations on a film set brings out creativity because when you're sort of stuck by these boxes, whether they're financial um, or you know location-based or time-based, the best stuff really, really comes out of you. Like you're able to think of things that maybe you wouldn't have, you know, if you had all the resources in the world, it can be overindulgent, but when you don't have any resources, then you really have to get crafty. And that's when 
the most and the purest creativity comes out. And what I've found is that things are much better when there are rules and sort of borders that you have to sort of work your way around versus you can do anything. So, you know, you end up, you know, potentially with nothing. That's true. Like maybe a, a cool backdrop, but then the story suffers. Mm -hmm. With Broken Ceiling, you had one location. Um, you had it for four days. You had all your actors there. Mm -hmm. You knew like you didn't have to really change locations. Were there other limitations within that within that office building where you were shooting that really lent itself to the story? Uh, I think, you know, we had a little bit of, of free reign of that office, which was great. It was just the limitation of time was something that everybody runs into. Um, but for us, you know, we had like a monitor sitting there going like, like oh, you have wow. to be out by a certain time, you know, you can't go over this. Um, so that was something that, you know, kept us going because it's like, we only have this much time in the day, you know, we're going to shoot for maybe 10, 12 hours, but like, that's it. We can't keep shooting. We can't go over, like we don't have that luxury. So with the time constraint, you know, that was very motivating and, and helped everybody. And plus, you know, uh, the story itself just lended itself to that because I wanted them to feel like they were in a high-pressure situation. So the fact that we were, in reality, in a high-pressure situation really, really helped, you know, get that feeling on the actors. Because they're on a conference call on a Sunday mm -hmm. and they all have to kind of go and face each other. And yeah. Going, Interesting. Yeah. And uh, how many pages did you do a day? Um, I think... The most we ever did in one day was about 60 pages. Oh, wow. Which is insane and unheard of. <laughs> we did like, you know, between 80 and 90 setups, which is crazy. But again, totally doable because we didn't have to move lights, you know, using the all natural lighting. Um, but yeah, like we, we were definitely cranking through and, and getting it and you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do when you're in a conference room for the majority of your running time. You just, I remember thinking, how do I make sure that people aren't bored? Because that's the most important thing because it can be so easy. So like visually, I have these four walls, right? Those are the parameters. Like what can I do to really make this one look, look interesting, but make sure that it really gets across what the characters are going through visually which was a hard thing to do, but, but something I think we were able to accomplish. Did you do a lot of close-ups then of just like eye movement or like how did you? Yeah, it, it was a variation of not using too much, you know, close-ups, but when it was necessary using that, using movement, when the moment or the scene called for it. Um, you know, there's a specific moment that I can recall where you've got uh, Ken, you know, the boss sitting in the center of the conference room. And then you've got Tyler and, uh, and Garrett on the sides and they're sort of going back and forth, you know, like sniping at each other. So it's like, if you have three of them right here, how do I make this dynamic and interesting and show the interplay between the characters? So what I came up with is having the camera throw from character to character in sort of a one take. 
So, you know, we would have Tyler say something and then we would whip pan it over to Garrett, who would say something, we would go back and then we would go to Ken and then back and forth. So you could go, oh, they are, you know, volleying off of each other, almost playing a verbal tennis, you know, so you see that. And that would play so much more different had I decided to do just the standard, you know, like single shot here, single shot there, cutting back and forth to really like ground it in one shot and move it back and forth, gave it much more of a sense of energy and a connectedness that I don't think, you know, just standard sort of cutting back and forth would have done. Did the actors know that at one point you would do 60 pages in one day of your four day shoot? No, no, of course not. Um, but it's just what we were able to do, which was great. I let them know that we were going to be shooting a lot and we had to get a lot done. But I, even I didn't think that we were going to shoot that much. Like I didn't plan for like, let's do 60 pages. Like that's insane. I was like, okay, let's, we got to get at least 20, maybe 30, you know, for four days. We'll stitch together 90 minutes, but, um, but we were just in it, you know, and, and they were down for it and they wanted to keep going. And, you know, it, it, it was exciting because everybody was sort of pushing towards that same goal of like, let's get this done. And because, you know, the, the fact that they're all stuck in this room together and sort of like at each other's throats, it's like, it absolutely helped that we were just barreling it through it because it didn't give them time to think or reflect back on, on line readings or performances. Like they were really in the moment, which is what was necessary for it. And I think we got the best performances out of it because of that constant sort of like striving and pushing. When day four came toward the end of the day, how are those last few hours? And then when, when they finally said, okay, it's time, like, yeah. how are you loading the truck? Well, what's that like? Sure. Um, there were no trucks. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have money for trucks. Okay. It the was Toyota like, Camry or let's, lo yeah, let's load it up into <laughs> the car and do that and like find some place to throw out trash. That was interesting. Um, the fact that, you know, at this location, like we had to bring trash bags and we had to take the trash with us. Wow. So trying to figure out in Los Angeles, where, where, where can I legally throw away trash was something that we had to do that I had to do, you know, after each shooting day. So just another thing that a director has to do is drive around with trash in their backseat and <laughs> throw it out someplace. Um, but Could you take it to the dump? No, no. We found like some open, you know, trash bins and oh, we just okay. like chucked it in, you know, <laughs> and did that. <laughs> Which out of the four days on Broken Ceiling was the 60 page, 60 pages that you went that, through? That was the second day. The second day was the one that we did the 60 pages. I think the first day we did around 30, and then the second day we did around, around 60 or so. Um, and yeah, it, it's funny because we did so much stuff like that first weekend, and then I was able to go back and just, you know, I had a full week to sort of look at the footage and I started editing right away and I found certain things that we had missed or that we didn't get or that, you know, there was like a boom shadow in some of the shots and like stuff that on the day like we hadn't caught. So it was it was super invaluable and I'm so glad that we split it up into two chunks because I was able to look at everything and go, okay, like we actually need to reshoot this and we need, a, you know, a pickup of that and we got to do this. Um, so when the next weekend came around, I had built in, you know, into the shooting schedule, all of these things that we had to, to sort of reshoot, um, which was an interesting challenge, but everybody, you know, 
sort of rose up to that. Um, but then on the, the sort of final days, uh, and the final day specifically, it was down to all of the, uh, the Karen Kendrick stuff, you know, for her character, Angela, because she, there's a, a thread through the movie where she sort of, you know, we see her on her own, which is very interesting and very fun and cinematic because we got to venture outside of the conference room and sort of travel, you know, throughout other parts of the office. And uh, it was cool because everybody else was sort of gone that day. It was actually, I think it was Father's Day or it was, it was one of the holidays where a couple of crew members were like, oh, I couldn't, can't make it, you know. Um, I think we, we lost our script supervisor or whatever on, on that day and one of our producers, but it was all right because it was mostly like non-dialogue based. It was more visual. So it was cool because we got to shoot the final shot of the movie as sort of the last thing that we actually shot. So it, it was nice, you know, and it, it was calming after all of that, you know, long dialogue and work to sort of spend a day shooting non-dialogue based visual stuff. Uh, it was cool. At the end of the day, the four, four days, did a representative from the building come up and be like, okay guys, this is it. We, we gotta wrap this up or how, how does that work? Uh, for that, we had a monitor that was kind of there the whole time. Um, oh. So yeah, there wasn't a like, you know, you guys gotta wrap it up. By that time we knew that like, we have to go, but it was cool in that like the last day we didn't shoot the full amount. Um, it was a little bit of a shorter day, so we left a little bit early and it was still, you know, it was still sunny out. The sun was actually coming down, you know, magic hour. It was, it was pretty good and, and it was very emotional. I, rem I remember it. Um, and this is something that for some reason, and maybe it's just the way that I handle, you know, being done with a shoot. But um, I remember, you know, going to my car, you know, the car with a bunch of trash bags in, in the trunk. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and I drove home and I sat there in the garage and I took about, I don't know, maybe five, 10 minutes. And I just sort of like started crying, um, like happy tears, happy that we had done it, sort of relieved that we had done it, but just so grateful that everybody had jumped in to do this crazy thing, shooting a feature film in four days, shooting 60 pages in one day, like that's insane. But everybody hopped on board and they did it. And just like it was all the emotions of like gratitude and thankfulness that came out. And yeah, it, it was it was a great feeling. And again, one of those feelings that that I, I love to have. And that's why I'm still, you know, making films. What makes a good story to you? Something that uh, grabs you almost immediately. Something that uh, makes you think, makes you feel, more importantly. Um, things that, you know, if it has elements that you don't expect, it can surprise you, um, just take you through the gamut of emotions, you know, laugh, cry, all of that. Um, that's what I think a good story is, something that really makes you feel, you know. I always ask people what their favorite movie was as a kid, but actually maybe more in your 20s when you were older, when you were sort of trying to figure out what you wanted. Sure. Was there a movie that you saw where you were like, oh, wow, this is really what I want to do? Yeah, uh, there have been a few. I have like the sort of my, my list of five that 
really impacted me, you know, uh, as I was growing up. I think from a young age, it was Batman Returns uh, because that, and I look back at that movie and I'm sort of amazed by it. It's so weird and subversive and like strangely violent for a kid's movie and like sexy. And it's one of those things and, and the aesthetic that Tim Burton had was just like amazing. And it's something that like definitely seated deep inside of myself of like, this is, you know, what I like nowadays in films. Um, the Matrix, when I saw that at 16, it absolutely blew my mind. Um, it really made me rethink the world. And as a 16 year old, like seeing that, uh, it's just forever like altered me. Like the fact that that movie can alter you as a person and change your brain and change your trajectory in life, that is an immense power, you know? And I'm so grateful for the Wachowskis like making that movie because like, who would I be if I hadn't seen that? Um, who knows, but uh, V for Vendetta, another one of those films um, that I absolutely love and has great social commentary. Um, the Kill Bills, volume one and two, um, definitely my favorite of Tarantino's. Um, I, I spent so many years <laughs> shooting films and like trying to mimic his style and his inserts and all of that stuff um, just because they impacted me so much. And uh, The Departed, I think, is tremendous. And it's an amazing example of a script that you read and you're like, okay, this is pretty good. And then you see the movie and you're like, whoa, like what happened? Because it's so different. And I read the script after I saw the movie and I was like, how did this script turn into that movie? And, you know, after sort of hearing, you know, how Scorsese talked about the process of it, you go like, oh, wow, like there was so much improvisation and so much sort of on the fly. And that's why the editing is like so kinetic and interesting and like how it's built the way it is, um, is because they were so improvisational. The actors wanted to do things and like, you know, Martin just like went with it and it still, you know, came out with this cohesive, amazing story, which I think is just an absolute mastery. Um, and then, yeah, Children of Men on that list. And I don't know if I mentioned it already, but In Bruges. In Bruges is just, it just hits me right in like the umami of a movie. You know what I mean? Like it, it hits me on such a deep level um, just because of like the pain of the characters and the, the comedy in it and the dialogue is, is just fantastic and the action in it and just everything. Like when, when you find movies that like speak to you, which is, is, is sort of rare and it feels like it was kind of a part of you, you know, like Whiplash is one of those movies where it's like, that's a movie where I'm like, it gets me mad because I was like, ah, I wanted to, I wanted to tell that. I didn't know that that was inside of me, but it's so, it's so exciting that that movie exists because it, you know, feels like a part of me. Um, yeah, those, those are the ones that really have sort of like impacted me and like set up what I love about film and the things that I try to strive for and not to mimic them, but to sort of make, you know, things that are true to me that people, you know, in the future may look at and go, that movie sort of changed my life. Like that would be the highest compliment. Like I can give 
the Wachowskis for The Matrix for changing my life, if somebody, you know, would say that about one of my films, like, there is no higher compliment than that. If I'm understanding you correctly, then you were saying, because I think I felt this too, like seeing a movie and being so overtaken by it that you were upset that you didn't get to make it because it, I, I felt that too. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like an envy thing. It's right. just that this is so much like I get this movie. How could someone else get this to, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I get it. That's, yeah. It's, you almost can't put it into words. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And you're like speechless after the film and you're sitting in the theater <laughs> and you're like, can everyone just go? Cause I just need a moment. This is like, <laughs> right. And you know, and then you see someone else is doing the same thing. You're like, wait a minute, yeah. this is really affecting people. And it's that connection that you, don't know that you're gonna have when you set out to make a film, you know? Like, the director couldn't have known that that movie was gonna affect me the way it did, but that's the sort of like alchemy and magic of it, that it can do that. These stories, these movies can do that to people, and it's, it's amazing. And we've kind of had a running theme here in the last few weeks of filmmakers just saying briefly a movie they saw when they were probably too young to see it. Mm -hmm. Is there a fun example of that? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think I was definitely in kindergarten and I saw Friday the 13th, one okay. of those. The one where he eats the cockroach. I remember that completely because I remember shutting my eyes and going like, ah, but like, <laughs> I was way too young to be seeing that. And then I think around the same time period was Terminator 2. That one was... <laughs> Should not have, you know, seen that when he starts like, you know, cutting the arm and like revealing the stuff. I was like, oh my god, and so violent, but so good. Like the fact that you can watch a movie that good at a young age, even though you shouldn't be, is like eh, you should you should watch it because it's just that good, even though it's not appropriate. Was that the babysitter that was playing it? <laughs> I know it was friends, <laughs> it was friends and, and parents who were away or whatever. You know, like no babysitters. Like let's, let's put this VHS in and watch it. <laughs> <laughs>